Welcome to the New Testament Review, where we discuss influential works of New Testament scholarship. I'm Laura Robinson. I'm Ian Mills. And we are PhD candidates at Duke University. Today we're discussing On Becoming the Righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21, by N.T. Wright. Laura, who is Nicholas Thomas Wright? Well, N.T. Wright is the former Bishop of Durham in the Church of England and a professor at St. Andrews University. He just retired last year. I think a lot of our listeners will probably know N.T. Wright not through his scholarly work, but through his popular work. He's done a lot of um, popular level Bible studies and publications that are written to a basically just a church going audience. His most popular works are probably Surprised by Hope, where he discusses eschatology, discusses, argues for sort of the restoration of this world as the eschatological hopes of of Christians. And of course, uh, Simply Christian and Simply Simply Jesus, Mm -hmm. uh, two books sort of trying to articulate his overarching view of who Jesus is and what the Christian message is. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, of all the people we've ever covered on the show, N.T. Wright's probably the closest to a household name yeah. we've done. You know, he's... It, it would not surprise me if a lot of people listening to this have heard him speak on a podcast. He's a very f- frequent guest on Justin Brierley's Unbelievable, for mm-hmm. instance. But I think a lot of people will probably have some level of familiarity. He wrote the first book, first book of scholarship I ever read on Paul. Uh, which yeah. is what St. Paul really said, which is a really yeah. great little short introduction, accessible introduction to sort of vaguely new perspective type readings of Paul. Yeah, I definitely think N.T. Wright is kind of a baby's first Bible scholar in a lot of ways. Like a lot of people get into the field through reading N.T. Wright. Yep. I was surprised by Hope, I think when I was still an undergrad. And that was definitely one of those books that made me be like, you know, oh my gosh, I want to be a Bible scholar. For sure. And then I have spent the last 10 years not really being like N.T. Wright at all. But he, he, has been, he has been described as a gateway drug to uh, de- scholarly yeah. approaches to Paul in the New Testament. I think that's definitely true. Like, even a lot of people who don't end up in the New Perspective camp or don't end up in N.T. Wright's version of the New Perspective, you know, I I think think N.T. Wright deserves a lot of credit for uh, being the the handholder into the world of scholarship for a lot of people. He does a really good job of showing not only the appeal, but, like, the usefulness, how how studying first century Judaism and the ancient world can help us read the Bible in interesting ways ways so that's really true so today's article uh is engaging in a debate that we've actually covered on this show before which is the the debate over the righteousness of god which i recorded with your then fiance now husband jonathan depew uh a while (laughs) back in may yeah and so that was an episode on richard hayes's article on romans 3 so you may want to go back and listen to that. We did a deeper dive into the history of scholarship on the phrase righteousness of God in that episode than we'll do today. This article looks at one of the instances of that phrase, um, righteousness of God, outside of Romans. So the, the argument usually focuses around Romans and Galatians, but the phrase shows up also here in Second Corinthians, just once. So the verse is Second uh, Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, the he that I started the sense with is God, and then him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, uh, and then we is 
Paul and his church, presumably. So those yep. are those are all the pronouns and they are antecedents. <laughs> so. Helpful. <laughs> um, just to contextualize this piece, uh, just a brief word on the debate. The argument is over whether or not righteousness of God refers to a righteousness that is a resource which is imputed to Christians or to Jesus' followers through Jesus' death and resurrection. This is Luther's view of the marvelous exchange that Jesus becomes sin or gets sin reckoned to him so that we might have Jesus' righteousness reckoned to us. So God, a phrase I grew up hearing was that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. Jesus' merit, Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us. That is, we don't actually like change necessarily, but our status is reckoned as righteous in exchange for Jesus' sacrifice. Wright makes the call that the righteousness of God in Paul's letters refers to the the covenant faithfulness of God, the, the, the faithfulness of God to keeping his covenant to his people. So that's what the righteousness of God is. And when God rightwises people, when he makes them right, he vindicates them. He shows that he is on their side. He delivers them from all their, their from all their troubles and, uh, and, and saves them. Yep. So the difference is on the Lutheran view, the righteousness is the status, is this resource that mm-hmm. uh, gets imputed to us. Whereas the view of Kazimon, Ernst Kazimon, N.T. Wright, uh, Richard Hayes, and other authors who take, which we're going to call the subjective genitive view, we'll talk about that in a second, is that this is the righteousness of God. This is God's own righteousness. That is God's righteous behavior. And one of the big things people point to is the Psalms, where God is praised as being righteous. You are righteous. And why are you righteous? You are righteous because you save your people, because you are faithful Mm -hmm. to your covenants, because you do what is right. Um, And so this is the N.T. Wright view. This is the Richard Hayes view, um, that the righteousness of God throughout Romans, throughout 2 Corinthians and, um, and elsewhere is the righteousness of God is Paul defending that God is in fact being righteous. God is acting mm-hmm. rightly. Um, so, right, N.T. right, that is, tries to map this onto a grammatical breakdown. And I'm not sure he does so completely successfully, but it's a helpful, like, quick parsing yeah. of what this phrase can mean. The construction righteousness of God in uh, Greek grammar, that involves what's called a genitive. And the genitive construction in Greek is basically anything we could translate as of something. So, dikaiosune tu theu. Tu theu is the genitive part. We know it's genitive because it's got the genitive ending on it. And there, so the very literally what it means is the righteousness of of God. But what does of God mean? You know, if we say like the fear of Laura, that can mean a few different things. It can mean the fear someone feels for me or it can mean the fear that I fear of some the fear that I feel of someone else. So there's a few different ways to parse out what exactly this genitive construction is doing. There's basically four options here and we're going to run through them uh real quick. The first one is the one I mentioned and this is the one that Wright is going to be himself advocating, and that's the subjective mm-hmm. genitive. To use the fear of Laura as an example, the fear of <laughs> Laura, the, so the, the subjective genitive is when the of bit is the subject of the verb, the head noun. So fear is the head noun, Laura is the, the genitive. So this would be, Laura would be the subject. So Laura is doing the fearing. The fear of Laura for cats. Laura is afraid of cats. That's not true <laughs> if you know Laura. But that would, that, that's what that would mean. So yeah. for righteousness of God, this is God 
acting rightly. God is the subject of the dikaiao, dikaiaas word group, which means, you know, something like straighten out, fixing, mm-hmm. vindicating, those sorts of concepts. God Make is the one. right, right wise, yeah. Yep, exactly. So. God is the one doing those things. One other scholar who falls in this category is Douglas Campbell at Duke, who frames the righteousness of God specifically as the delivering that God does. If righteousness in the ancient world means to make right, to, uh, to, 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 to vindicate, to correct. Uh, specifically, when you're talking about prisoners or slaves, how do you make a slave right? How do you make a prisoner right? Well, you set them free. So he frames the righteousness of God specifically as the delivering action of God, the, the setting free, um, specifically from the powers of sin and death. Yep. So. The second category of fear of Laura, of our genitive construction, is the objective category. And so this is where the genitive thing, here, Laura, is the object of the head noun that is fear. So this would be you being afraid of Laura. It would you could call it the fear of Laura. So for righteousness of God, uh, this one's actually kind of weird. It's not totally clear that lots of people actually would you know accept this as a description of their own view. Although Luther seems to slip into it sometimes. But that is that is acting rightly towards God, where God is sort of yeah. the 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 object of the verb acting rightly. Um, but that's a bit strange. It doesn't, the verb dekaio doesn't usually function that way. No, no, no. Yeah, it makes a lot more sense for verbs that really can go either way. Because it's definitely not you you making God right. No. That's definitely not implied. It seems to be more, I, I, I think, the, I, I think that specifically what N.T. Wright identified as the objective option was basically the response you have to God rewarding the innocent and in the, the righteousness and punishing the guilty right like it's the justice you present before god is that yeah this isn't a particularly important category so maybe we'll move on to the possessive yeah possessive is basically you know the anything that you would be said to own by use of the word of right you know like the the microphone of laura is laura's microphone right so the fear of laura is uh the fear it's it's similar subjective fear you have um so the righteousness of god in this case would be something that god possesses that is within himself so god's god's own personal righteousness right right? Um, and we definitely see luther using this um that righteousness is sort of a substance or a resource or a material or something like that which god is able to dole out yeah god is able to transfer over whether or not luther actually you know thought of it that way or speaking metaphorically, this is, the language does get construed this way in the Lutheran reading sometimes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then the final one of these is a uh, genitive of source. So it's where the object has its origin. In the specific case of the righteousness of God, this is not the righteousness that God has that is true to God, but the righteousness that God may give to other people that has its origin in God. Uh, so this is a this derives very naturally from the imputed righteousness idea that if you have the righteousness of God in yourself, you know it, it it's the righteousness of God because it has its origin in God. Sometimes of phrases in English can also be translated with from mm-hmm. without a change of meaning, and that's the source usage. D- uh, Laura of Duke could mean Laura mm-hmm. from Duke, the sense of that from this Duke, is the sort yeah. of source where she's coming from, her background. So for righteousness of God, this one is very common. This one, as Wright would have it, this is the this is the mainstay of Lutheran readings of righteousness of God because the righteousness is something that we get that comes from God. God is the source for 
this this righteous status which is imputed to us. So right is going to characterize Luther and Boltman and Konzelman and Cranfield as treating righteousness of God as a genitive of source. Yeah, one of the first people, I think, in 20th century Pauline scholarship to really challenge this sort of dominating Lutheran view is Ernst Kosman. And Ernst Kosman went for a bit more of a subjective genitive reading of the phrase righteousness of God and specifically went angled for the idea that righteousness in this construction refers not to something that God gives people, but to God's saving power. That salvation power within God, the, the power by which God delivers people, sanctifies, justifies, whatever language you want to use to describe salvation, that, that that's the power by which God does that. That's God's righteousness. Kazaman was a 20th century German who was very interested in de-Judaizing, which is kind of the language he might have used, Paul. So this is, for him, salvation-making power without necessarily any reference to the mm-hmm. history of salvation, uh, God's re- covenant with Israel. And N.T. Wright is going to be really pushing back on that. And I would argue he may be pushed back a little bit too far, but mm-hmm. it's still a really important yeah. corrective, which is something Wright and Hayes have both done, which is pointing out that the righteousness of God as the saving power of God is something that's a hugely important theme in the covenant relationship God has with Israel. God's righteousness, how does God behave righteously towards Israel? He preserves Israel. He saves Israel. These are the things that the Psalms confess about God that the prophets call out for from God. And so, N.T. Wright is going to say that actually this phrase, dikaiosune theyu, actually means covenant faithfulness. It actually refers specifically (laughs) to God's faithfulness to Israel, to his covenant people. And I say it too far only because I think that actually sort of that is what it means for God to be righteous with regard to Israel. And that's something Paul is concerned with in Romans and Galatians. Um, But it probably narrows too much what, you know, first of all, it's just not what the word means. Tikaiosune just means, you know, acting rightly or some sort of righteous behavior or righteous category or status. But moreover, it probably narrows it too much uh, because Paul is concerned to defend the God's right, uprightness, God's right behavior with regard to the even the perceptions of the world. Yeah, yeah. I think this is kind of the nice edge that a lot of defining righteousness of God lives on when you read scholarship about this. Specifically, a lot of scholars are trying to draw out specific valences that might not be captured in the phrase righteousness of God, drawing on, you know, textual traditions or drawing on um, sort of public Greco-Roman life to get out specifically what would be heard and what connotations there are with this word. But it, it can drive over the ditch into it means this when it just practically doesn't. You know, Campbell glosses this word as deliverance, and um, I think the, I think the connotation is bang on that you know to to justify a prisoner, to justify a uh, slave is to set them free. It's not quite the same thing as claiming that uh, dikaiosine means deliverance, though, right? Like those are two different things. So, so we've set up all this complex grammatical categories that sort of work some of the time, although my big critique of them is that sort of possessive genitive could work for all the different interpretive options. Yeah, it really could, couldn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But let's just make clear what the the difference here is, because the difference is not illusory. There is, in fact, Mm -hmm. two interpretive camps on this, and that is the imputed righteousness view, the wondrous exchange view of Luther, which is that God 
takes this resource of righteousness and imputes it to human beings. And that's what Paul is trying to describe when he raises the phrase righteousness of God versus the Kazaman Wright Hayes view, which is that the righteousness of God is God's own uprightness. And Paul yeah. is in the book of Romans trying to justify God to humanity. He is interested in defending God's righteousness. Go reread Romans uh, 1. And you see that his thesis is that God is in fact righteous and Paul is not, in, not ashamed of what his message is about God's behavior. So the problem why this uh, essay is not about Romans or Galatians is the 2 Corinthians 5 has traditionally been read as the proof text, the go-to text to defend imputed righteousness. Because mm-hmm. even most other you know, defenders of this view would agree, Paul doesn't describe God imputing righteousness to us elsewhere. It's really just right mm-hmm. here. Uh, you go yeah. read the account of salvation in Romans and Colossians, there's no description of imputed righteousness. You need 2 yeah. Corinthians 5.10, which is in the middle of a different letter that isn't really about <laughs> justification. So you need to pull in 2 Corinthians 5.10 to sort of read righteousness of God throughout these other letters. And so this is a really important verse. You know, what Ian said just now is really important, that 2 Corinthians is not about justification. This is not explaining the mechanism by which salvation happens. This is specifically about Paul reflecting on his own role as an apostle, where he stands in relationship to other apostles, and what the work of apostleship is. When Paul says that we have become the righteousness of God... If we think of righteousness of God being not like the state of being imbued with righteousness, but the work of salvation, the work of reconciling, and we think of that as being the thing that apostles have become, that actually kind of makes way more sense uh, because that's what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about the status of being an apostle and what apostles do. They reconcile, they justify, they save. So open up 2 Corinthians, just flip to chapter 1 and start reading, and ask yourself, what's the point of this letter? Why is Paul writing to these people? So look at 2 Corinthians 1, 13 and 14. Paul tells us what this letter is about, why he's writing. He's writing so that the Corinthians have something to boast about, namely himself. He's writing to explain, express his ministry, to articulate a vision of his mission so that the Corinthians can be proud of him, Paul, which is, you know, kind of fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, so the Corinthians are supposed to be boasting about Paul. Paul is boasting about the Corinthians. There's some mutual pride going on here. Then we move right into 3.1, where Paul seems to be pretty sure he's talking about the same subject, the pride the Corinthians should have in him as an apostle, and the pride he should have in them is the product of his apostolic work. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Surely we do not need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you, do we? So Paul then Paul gets onto the subject of letters of recommendation, which apparently the Corinthians asked him for at some point, and he's been salty about it ever since. You know, that he doesn't need a letter of recommendation because the Corinthians are his letter of recommendation. Yeah, but he he foregrounds this reference to the letter of recommendation by asking if we're commending ourselves again. So he's clearly building on what has come before. We're still talking about Paul's apostolic calling. Yep. If you go through this whole letter and just look for sort of the programmatic sentences, the sentence that set out, okay, what I'm doing in this next section is, what I've just done in this last section is, it's true, Paul weaves through all sorts of different topics in this letter, he's all over the place, Uh, but the programmatic sentences, the statements about what's going on is, 
he is throughout the whole thing defending his ministry as the authentic, as the legitimate working of God in the world. He is, um, as he says later, like a diplomat for God. Um, so another programmatic sentence just happens to be for one, um, which is probably why the chapter break was there. Uh, Therefore, since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart. So again, ministry. It's it's about Paul's, the ministry Paul is engaged in. And then we get to 512, which is starting to set up this, the text that will bring us to 521. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast in outward appearance and not in the heart. So again, Paul is talking about boasting again. He's talking about other people uh, that the Corinthians might need to commend Paul to. So we're still talking about apostolic authority. This brings us on home to uh, 5.18 through 19, where Paul talks about the ministry of reconciliation idea, the idea that he is he is engaged in the work of the reconciling ministry. He wants the Corinthians to be reconciled to him as he is to God. You know, God is reconciling the world to himself. Paul is reconciling himself to the Corinthians. So this is the same topic. We are still talking about Paul and his ministry and what authority he has to do it. So we're about to dive into the paragraph in which 521 shows up. So it's worth just like setting up where we are. What we've just tried to show you is what Wright tries to argue is that what this letter is about is Paul's own apostolic ministry as God's ministry to the world. That Paul, we are the people through whom God is acting. We are showing you that you can be proud in our ministry. And the point of this is, again, like this is not about how to get to heaven. <laughs> this is not about debates over law observance. This is consistently about Paul's ministry. And as Paul begins the paragraph in which 521 will appear, that very paragraph, he begins that paragraph by calling back to that same argument he's been having over and over again, that I'm not here to just commend myself to you Rather, I'm giving you something to boast in. This, Paul says, is a service to you, uh, I guess. <laughs> um, so the point is that this is not a break. This is not an aside. This is not... By the way, we should just mention how you get to heaven. This is part of the same thesis. That is, we are the ministry of God. So we're going to read the primary text to you. We're going to read 521 to you. And then we're going to read the whole paragraph. And then we're going to read the very next verse, which 6-1 which you should note, of course, there these chapter breaks are much later. These are not in Paul. So you should read all these things together and hear them together. So I'll read 521, and then Laura will read the paragraph. Sounds good. 521. For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then one more. As we work together with him, we urge you also not to accept the grace of God in vain. So if you look at the verse just before 21 and the verse just after 21, what are they both about? They're both about 
us being the means by which God makes his appeal to the world. We, through us, God makes the appeal. We are how God is working in the world. And we see the exact yeah. same thing in the very next verse, as we work together with him. So to read 520 as a random aside about how righteousness is imputed so you can have a righteous status in the final judgment would I mean, it'd be just a radical break from what 6.1 is talking about and what 5.20 is talking about. So Wright proposes a much better reading. Yeah, so basically the way this operates then is that the the description of becoming the righteousness of God is essentially full-tilt participation, right? That we participate in the reconciling ministry of God through Christ. Uh, Christ is participating in this too. There's this sort of like top-down unity of purpose uh, that all centers around the reconciliation, the righteousness of God, which is specifically the covenant faithfulness, the salvation, the uh, the reconciliation that happens through God's righteousness. Wright says in another work that Paul has a word for reckoning, for thinking about, mm-hmm. for perceiving as, for counting. Um, and he doesn't use it here. He doesn't say Jesus was reckoned sinful, was God regarded Jesus as sinful so that he could regard us as righteous. He says something else. He says Jesus became sin. Think of the parallel in Galatians where Jesus becomes a curse so that we might become the righteousness of God, so that we might be how God fixes the world. We might be, you know, that thing that God does, God's uprightness, God's covenant faithfulness, God's act saving activity for the world. We become that. It is through us. We become ambassadors. We become, we start working together with God so that through us, God can make his appeal to the world, which is what 20 says. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I think this is a really compelling reading of what the righteousness of God is. It's interesting to me that N.T. Wright basically takes it as a given here that to become sin means to become a sin offering. I think that's really interesting. I don't necessarily know if there's a good textual warrant for that um, because an offering for sin is a construction that also happens all the time in Septuagint. It's not like this is the only word you have for a sin offering. The way Doug Campbell approaches the first half of the verse is basically the idea that the, the the idea of like condemning sin in the flesh, right? That you see in Romans. The idea that Jesus takes on sinful flesh, he takes on like the powers of sin and death, and those are crucified on the cross. I, I think that has more to recommend it than the sin offering idea, because I just don't know if there's good textual warrant for that. But the payoff is that us becoming the righteousness of God is the only place in the whole New Testament where you get anything that sounds like imputed righteousness, where you get anything that sounds kind of like God is giving us his righteousness. And write notes for the record that it's God's righteousness, not Jesus's righteousness, which is already a bit of a problem for Luther's construction of things. But it's it's the only place where you have anything about the righteousness, like sort of, it might sound like it's being transferred over to us or we're being reckoned as God's righteousness. Although, you know, Romans 4 has to be discussed there, reckoning, which is another great article we'll probably do by N.T. Wright someday. And this passage, very clearly, if you read this passage in context, that's not what it's talking about. That's not what the discussion is. The discussion is, what is our role? Um, And his answer is 20, we're ambassadors. His answer in 6.1 is that we're working together with God. And his answer in 5.21 is that we are God's right action towards the world. Wright says that 520 and 521 need to be read as mutually interpretive. He's saying the same thing. He's saying more or less the same thing in different language. But the very specific payoff here is that 
it, it basically takes the only leg on the table out of the way for the idea that Paul's view of salvation is that Jesus is righteous and that God looks on us and sees Jesus' righteousness that, that was given to us particularly by our faith. And, you know, we kind of giggled at Paul sounding kind of vain, Paul sounding kind of like, you can brag in me. Um, and it, it's true, it just kind of sounds funny and that's worth, that's worth chuckling about. But at the same time, I think drawing on the work of Heidi Wendt's work on independent religious experts, that this sort of like self-authentication, this sort of representation as your of your program as worthwhile is something that you see in lots of people who are, you know, Paul in 2 Corinthians is talking a lot about money and getting this, collecting this offering and when he's going to show up for this offering and where he's going to bring it. This is something you just have to do. This is very conventional in antiquity to just sort of, give a new articulation of your vision of what your project is, of the of the wisdom that you have to hand over, what basically more or less what you're up to. So when I read this, I really, I don't see an insecure Paul. I don't see, or I don't see an arrogant Paul. This isn't a Paul who is, you know, just gloating in how great he is. Um, he's doing something that's very conventional for someone in his position, for someone who spends his life sort of propounding a message about God, and that is, giving an articulation of what he's up to and how that fits into his understanding of who God is. I also, it it might be worth mentioning too that when we're talking about independent religious professionals, I think this can sometimes make us think a little bit sometimes of like um, basically megachurch pastors (laughs) or like David Ramsey, you know, like people who are major celebrities and sort of like pulling down significant amounts of money. And I actually think that probably it's worth remembering that these are often like survival projects, right? Like most people in the ancient world live on the margin of survival. So when you're talking about going into a city and there's a bunch of people there who are recommending themselves uh, because they're really good at star charts uh, (laughs) or something like that, you know, which which would have happened in the ancient world. And Paul probably would have been seen as being somebody like that. You know, these are people who are basically trying to make enough money every day to, you know, eat and find a place to sleep. This is an avenue for subsistence living. It's not, you know, it's not a plush gig. (laughs) And Wendt talks about that a lot, that we shouldn't think of people as just charlatans. At the same time, we also need to look at Paul and realize Paul worked a profession. He defends us in 1 Corinthians, right? To, to feed himself. And the money he's collecting in 2 Corinthians and elsewhere, um, he discusses in Romans and other places, is money he's bringing to give to the poor in Jerusalem. He's not collecting this for his, even to pay his own way. He's doing this um, as a gift to the poor in Jerusalem, which may refer to a group of Christians, or it may actually be charity. There's a whole conversation to be had there. But the the collection, while it does have some similarity to these these religious professionals and some meaningful similarity. Um, it's not exactly the same thing. This is a this is an offering he's bringing to other people. Paul does not make his money by preaching. He's very proud of this, and it also seems to actively offend some people that he doesn't. Because uh, Jesus pe- says you should make your money by preaching, and Paul has to say, exactly. I know Jesus says that, but I don't. I'm not going to do that because I'm even doing something better. Yeah, and and also part of the gift giving culture of the ancient world is such that denying support can be seen as a real snub. In 2 Corinthians 5, N.T. Wright argues 
that Paul is not talking about the status of righteousness transferred over to us, but rather what we become as a result of Jesus' work. That is, we get to become ambassadors. We get to work together with God. We get to become what it looks like for God to be working in the world, setting things right. That is, we become the righteousness of God. All right. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Laura. This was fun. You'll notice this episode is coming out not at our usual time. We will not be having a after party for this episode. Yeah. Sorry, guys. March was hard. But uh, watch for a new episode, hopefully closer to the right time in April. Thanks. Yeah. Sounds good. Take care.